Tonight on Farage, after those tax rises were announced yesterday, there's a vote in the House of Commons. It's about to happen. When we get the result, we'll cut live to the House of Commons. But before that, Sajid Javid this morning made it clear that 12 to 15-year-olds that want to have the vaccine and a sound of mind can overrule their parents. Are you pleased with that? I'll be joined on Talking Pints by Tim Montgomery, who worked in number 10 for Boris Johnson. Be very keen to see what he has to say. So there's been mounting speculation about whether 12 to 15-year-olds should have the jab or not. What was going to happen? And indeed, the JCVI came to no conclusion on it. They said, whilst there may be benefits, there also may be risks. Now, look, I have not been one of the anti-vaxxers at all. It struck me that certainly for older people, for those that are vulnerable, the vaccine would make a great deal of sense. Uh, but I've begun to be concerned uh, about vaccinating younger people on the basis that actually... Uh, this virus poses very little risk to them, provided they haven't got any under, other underlying health issues. But what really did surprise me this morning was Sajid Javid on Sky News being asked about 12 to 15-year-olds and what government policy would be. Ah, he says very clearly, he says that actually, ultimately, under legislation that was laid down a long time ago, that if children wanted to have the vaccine, but their parents didn't want them to have it, there'd be an attempt at arbitration, but that ultimately the child's view would prevail. Now, I have to say that the Gillick principles that were set out in the 1980s were specifically about the contraceptive pill. And the view was taken that 14 and 15-year-olds could make an informed view on what the risks were and whether it was the right thing to do. Uh, and that case was won. Uh, Gillick lost. And that has been there ever since. But it's not been extended to other medical procedures, and I can't find any other cases of it. And it does seem to me, how can a 12-year-old make an informed choice about this vaccine if even the JCVI can't make an argument as to whether it should be used for people of that age group or whether it shouldn't. So I'm disconcerted by this and also surprised that this is supposed to be a Conservative Party, a Conservative Party that believes in the family and a Conservative Party that believes in the rights of parents. But it appears to be a Conservative Party that thinks not only the child has got the right to make those decisions, but that actually the state as well can arbitrate. Because throughout that interview, almost every question that Sajid Javid was asked, he simply couldn't give an answer to. And yet, when it came to this issue, he was very clear. So let's debate whether we think 12-year-olds should be able to overrule their parents on this question of the vaccine. And to discuss this tonight, I'm joined by Dr Amanda Gummer, child psychologist and mother of two, and Molly Kingsley, Telegraph col columnist and co-founder of the parents group Us For Them. Let's start, Amanda, with you. Is it right and proper on a vaccine that even the JCVI uh, cannot say should be administered to 12-year-olds or needs to be administered to 12-year-olds, is it right on this issue that a 12-year-old should be able to overrule their parents. Hi, good evening. Um, good evening. First of all, the JCVI, 
the JCVI can't make a blanket rule, which is because for some children, it will be the right thing to do and for others, it may not. So I think we're looking at ideally a consensus between the parents and the children. But as a, as a society, I think we need to look at the bigger picture and we are disempowering our children. We are infantilizing them and keeping them, almost overprotecting them from themselves for their own good. And that is contributing to the massive rise in mental health issues because those children don't lack, they're lacking agency, they're lacking um, independence and autonomy. And that lack, that helplessness, that feeling out of control and having to con, um, conform to everybody else's wishes or views um, is, is part of, I think, a really a growing problem. So are you arguing that the view of parents when it comes to 12-year-olds doesn't really matter? Not at all. I'm saying that what we want is a, is a dialogue. And I think with a lot of these things, um, tricky issues around teenagers, what you want is to be able to have those dialogues where the children are listening to the parents, the parents are giving their opinions, but ultimately it's the child's body. What happens if you have um, an anti-vax parent, the child's best friend has vulnerable um, family members, and that child isn't then able to socialise with her best friend because she hasn't been vaccinated. Um, so there are, there are definitely reasons why at the age of 12, cognitively, socially and emotionally, children are potentially able to make that decision. And yes, they shouldn't be doing it alone. And yes, they should have the support and information from schools but, and parents. But, but in, terms and of, in terms of spreading the virus, people who've had a double vaccination can still spread the virus, can't they? They can, and I'm not an epidemiologist, so I'm... I'm uh, but that's not what the, this is about, though, is it? This is about the risk to the child and their ability to make an informed decision and, about... And, and, and why 12? Why not 8 or 7? Um, developmentally, I would say anything above 8 is potentially reasonable. Ah, I think okay. 12, is, is 12, is, 12 is a bit safer than 8, so I think it's, right. it's a degree, it's a risk-benefit, isn't it? But potentially from 8. All right, well, we've heard your point of view on this, Amanda. Let's ask... Molly Kingsley, who I think has a rather different point of view. Molly, um, I, I, you know, I'm very much on the side that says uh, that, you know, parents' views do matter, especially with 12-year-olds, and especially with um, a vaccine that even the JCVI cannot say should be implemented. What say you? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I'm all for empowering children generally. I think there's a few points to actually unpick here. I think the first point actually I'd make is let's just step back because actually it strikes me that this debate about parental consent, sure, it's important, but actually it's premature. We haven't got to a point yet of this decision having been taken. And actually, we now know if the CMO decides to take this, this decision, it will be a very controversial decision in life of what JCVI have said. And listening to the kind of controversy, and I, you know, my sense is perhaps it's a deliberate controversy that's been stoked by ministers, because we've got, you know, Nick Gibb and Gavin Williamson saying one yeah. thing. We've got, uh, you know, uh, Sajid Javid today saying something quite different, this point about, oh, if children are competent, we'll let them decide. And I think actually that deflects from the underlying issue, which is, should we be doing it at all? But stepping back from that, you know, should, should we be letting a 12-year-old decide on something that JCVI is unable to decide on. I mean, well, I just think it's absolutely bonkers, <laughs> frankly. That was, and I no, think that, this... Molly, that was my view. Um, but it was interesting. It was interesting. And I want to come back to Amanda on this point, because 
as I say, through the interview, Sajid Javid, you know, basically stonewalled everything away, didn't answer anything until it came to this question of should a 12-year-old have the right to overrule their parents? And he was very clear that the principles of this had been established decades ago. And he's talking about the 1986 case that Victoria Gillick fought. And this was about people under the age of 16 being able to access the contraceptive pill. Um, but surely that judgment was about the pill, or do you feel it actually is about wider medical procedures? It's interesting. I did quite a lot of research into this. I mean, it was about in the 90s. Um, yeah. About 80s. children's ability to give informed consent to surgery. Yeah, well, and after that, I was looking at informed consent to surgery, and there are some really interesting principles. So one is the actual age and stage of the child. So are they cognitively, socially and emotionally able to process it and understand things like the permanence of death, the risk, weigh up hypotheticals? And that doesn't really happen until the sort of just before the teenagers. But then the other thing is their life experience. And if you've got, you can have very um, experienced eight, nine-year-olds who've been in and out of hospital for years, know what pain is, and have seen people die, have understand that, and they can be in a better position to make an informed decision than a 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old who's never had to deal with any of that before. So there is a, there's a biological sort of age component, but there's also an experience component. And I think if people, this is where I believe that this should be left to the, um, the children who are 12 and above to make their own decision about what happens to their body, given that they are developmentally able to weigh at risks like that. And do you understand why many parents feel uncomfortable about this? Absolutely, and I completely understand parents want the best for their children. They have that fear of, of, the, of the unknown, fear of a lot of things. But as a general rule within society, I worry that we are over-parenting our children and keeping them too wow. young and stopping them taking control of their own lives. I'm not sure, Amanda. I maybe think if there's a bit more parenting, there might be a few fewer social problems, but thank you for giving us your point of view. And, Molly, I want to ask you, is this something uh, that your group or others might actually try and fight through the courts? I mean, I think the thought that we can rely on Gillick, and, you know, I hear all of those arguments, but I think, first of all, it goes directly against what the NHS say. So let me just read you that. The NHS say in relation to the COVID-19 vaccination programme, it would rarely be appropriate or safe for a child to consent without the parent's involvement, and a parent's consent must be sought prior to vaccination. My understanding of Gillick is that for it to apply, the child would need to, to, know, to know about the long-term potential risks of this yeah. vaccine. We now, at this can't. point, it is... Most adults don't know this because there's been such a suppression of data that I just don't understand. There's no quantification of risk and benefit out there. We would all really like to see that. I would like to see that as a parent and on behalf of all the other parents as for them represent. So I think that is essential. If we're serious about this, let's get this data into the public domain. Let's put it in front of children. And then we need to show that children actually understand this. The other okay. thing, and I think there is a point here about we also need to take into account the wider climate. These children, like many of their parents, have been subject to a fear propaganda campaign for the last year and a half. You only have to look at things like the BBC video, uh, you know, that's been circulated about, you know, you, you, you can still say yes to the vaccine if your yeah, parents want but, you but, to. Yeah, but, but Molly, this, it's this all for your pressure. own good. It's all for your own good. It's Government <laughs> knows best. Anyway, thank you both of you for contributing to this debate and putting passion on both sides of it. Well, viewers, you know exactly where I stand on this. Uh, I, I have to say, if the JCVI don't 
absolutely think uh, that this should be given to 12-year-olds, then I don't think parental consent should be overridden at all. Give me your thoughts, please, gbviews at gbnews.uk. We're crossing now live to the House of Commons to hear how MPs have voted on the government's plan to introduce a health and social care tax. Unlock! The question is the Ways and Means motion. As many as are of that opinion say aye. aye. Of the contrary, no. Right, so this vote is happening as we speak. We'll bring you the results, I'm guessing, in a few minutes' time. Before that, the channel crisis. And, yes, it is a crisis, as the numbers that cross the channel just seem to grow exponentially. We're well through the 14,000 mark so far this year. And a war of words has broken out between Priti Patel and various French politicians, uh, the MP... For Calais, who we had on this show the other week, says it's impossible. We can't... There's no way we can police that length of coastline. Well, it's a pity he didn't tell us that before he said he'd be very happy to get another £54 million from us. And uh, now uh, we're being told that if we do withhold the final payment of that money, which Patel's threatened to do, that that will have dire consequences. And the French are now accusing us of a breach of trust and faith. I mean, you almost couldn't make this stuff up. And I keep asking the question, what is the cost of this? Well, I'll tell you what, it's a lot more than £54 million. Because on busy days in a channel like today, what we have are RAF spotter planes, drones, border force, uh, police in vast numbers... Uh, on the beaches, and then when some of these boats hit the shingle and people disappear, we have uh, helicopters often trying to find people and chasing them through the Kent countryside for hours. The £54 million we've given to France or promised in this tranche is a fraction compared to what we're spending every day, and that's on top, of course, of the 42% increase in looking after what are called asylum seekers, although in many cases proved to be illegal immigrants, that it's gone up 42% in the last couple of years. But I also wonder, I mean, dare I raise this subject, but I also wonder what is the social cost? What is the potential implication for national security? I really genuinely do. And I can't see under this government, especially with the European Convention on Human Rights still being in place, I can't see any of it changing. Well, joining me to discuss this is Professor David Coleman, Professor of Demography at the University of Oxford. David, good evening and welcome to GB News. Good evening. I was just talking there about the cost of this. Can you give us, through legal and illegal immigration, some idea of the demographic change in this country over the last few years? Through legal and immigration uh, and illegal is, is really quite uh, spectacularly um, different. Uh, almost all the uh, population growth taking place in the UK at present is as a consequence directly or indirectly of, of migration. Um, a large part, um, if not almost all, of housing demand um, is associated with the creation of new households um, whose head, if I can use the old-fashioned term, uh, is born overseas. Uh, and um, 
this is going to change the composition of the population very substantially uh, and, and the way that Britain looks and feels. Um, but my, um, asylum seeking is only a, a part of that. Asylum seeking is only a, um, less than 10% uh, of all migration to Britain. Uh, but that does pose uh, intractable problems because we are seriously hamstrung um, with international agreements that we've uh, willingly uh, uh, put ourselves into and, and also by our own internal arrangements, judicial activism and, and various other changes, um, which make it very difficult uh, to do anything within uh, uh, um, current law uh, about stopping this or reducing it very much or removing those who have no uh, entitlement to remain. And am I, so am I, I right, pessimistic, but I am pessimistic. Am I right to put my finger on the Human Rights Act and the incorporation of European human rights law into British law and the fact that the European Court in Strasbourg can still rule? I think that's only a part of it. Uh, I, I'm not a lawyer, and you would, you would find someone much better qualified than I am to answer that. Um, but the, the broader context is an enormous expansion of, of the criteria for entitlement to, to asylum, starting with the 1951 Geneva Convention, uh, which was confined to Europe. Then in 1967, they expanded to the whole world with very little consideration or, or, of the possible enormous consequences of it. Um, uh, and then further changes, indeed, as you say, the Human Rights Act uh, and the, uh, the, the development of human rights uh, legislation in the European Union uh, and also the, uh, the growth of, uh, of judicial activism on the, on the part of of the Supreme Court um, and of um, the rather large number of, of human rights lawyers who are very active um, in, in finding every possible <laughs> loophole to prevent removal uh, 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 and make, make for uh, people to be accepted. Yeah, I think the majority of people, David, um, you know, are OK with legal immigration, provided it's done in the right level and, you know, with the right numbers and provided that it's giving a benefit to the country. But I think what's happening across the Channel is making people very, very angry. And this has now risen to the third, equal with the environment, most important issue on people's agendas. Um, and do you see any prospect of these ever-growing numbers coming across the English Channel? Do you see any prospect of this stopping? Well, you're quite right that the illegal migration um, in, in dinghies across the channel is a, a very substantial and, and growing irritant, um, which has um, stirred up uh, public feeling and, and driven uh, concern about migration, which previously was uh, not at the top, uh, to the top of the agenda. But with respect, I would say that, that the general trend of migration is also fueling this because it is so high. Uh, people don't remember numbers in detail, of course, but um, there's a general awareness that, that migration, uh, even outside uh, illegal immigration and uh, uh, asylum claiming, is very substantial. It's of the order of 300,000 net per year and has been so for the last, the last uh, 10 years or so. Um, uh, and it is that which is making uh, perceptible uh, changes to, 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 the, uh, to the country and its composition. No, I agree with that, and thank you very much indeed for joining us. There we are, vote Conservative and take back control of our borders. That's what we were told. Extraordinarily, 
Donald Trump is in the news today. Donald Trump and Donald Trump Jr. They are going to be commentating on a boxing match next week. I'll tell you all about it in a moment. We're waiting for results in the House of Commons on the vote to increase taxation to fund health and social care. As soon as we get the result, we will cross live to Westminster. I asked you, this debate, should 12-year-olds be able to overrule their parents when it comes to having the vaccine? And your responses are coming in. Jean on email says, Nigel, the decision on vaccination should be left to the parents. They know their child best. As for the experts... They can't even reach a consensus. Just madness. Yes, in many ways, we have had enough of experts, haven't we? Cell on Twitter says, For goodness sake, when I have my 12-year-old grandson stay overnight, he cannot make up his mind what he wants for breakfast, let alone whether he should have the vaccine. And Thomas on Twitter says to me, So these children are all clued up and able to weigh up the risks for vaccines but are not allowed to smoke or drink. Well, that's true. And 12-year-olds apparently are able to make this decision about the long-term effects of the vaccine when the JCVI can't do it themselves, because they're not sure. It is, I think in this particular case, ludicrous. Now it's time for What the Farage. I find this extraordinary, this one. The police will trial online chats, yet the Met Police will offer some victims of crime a video chat rather than in-person visits due to cost-cutting. Scotland Yard's ex-commissioner, Lord Bernard Hogan House, said his old force was holding a trial of the scheme, which he claimed would save money and benefit victims, reluctant to have police at their door, saying satisfaction goes up with video calls. You couldn't make this stuff up, could you? He said the Met has got one at the moment, and not only do you have a phone call, but you follow it up with a video conference to see whether or not you need a visit. Frankly, a police officer coming to your doors sometimes can be a negative. If you are reporting your neighbour, for example, you may not want the officers at your door. Critics, including serving officers, say, in cases like domestic abuse, it is vital there is some face-to-face -face interaction for a number of reasons. And I do find that extraordinary. It links in very much to the fact that so many, such a high percentage now in some parts of the country, of GP appointments are being held online. The world is going online. I thought one of the whole points of the police force is that they could be a reassuring arm around us in times of trouble. Another what the farage, that, I, that actually this one doesn't make me just shake my head, it makes me quite annoyed, really. Wait for this. White people working in the National Health Service have been given anti-racism guidance in a blog post on the official health service website where they've been told to study their white privilege and not be defensive. The post on the NHS Leadership Academy website named Dear White People in the UK shares, shares five tips directed solely at white people to help them to be more inclusive in the workplace. In the tips published by Ajanine Benjamin, the Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Lead at the Nursing and Midwifery Council. Um, and, 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 and she's coming out with these utterly ridiculous quotes and saying, ah, before, before I finish that, let's go live to the, right, to the House of Commons to see how they voted. The nose to the left, 248. So the eyes have it, the eyes have it. Unlock. 
Okay, so that is a that is a comfortable victory for the government, 319 to 248. Uh, Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, you're there. Darren, uh, a reasonably sizable rebellion, but not enough to beat the government. Yeah, indeed, and many people, of course, Nigel pointed out time and time again today that MPs, frankly, really haven't had much time to uh, debate this rather significant move by the government in terms of increasing uh, national insurance. Uh, frankly, they've had a matter of hours to discuss it in the Commons. Uh, and yet, as you say, maybe not a surprise that the government have not faced a significant rebellion on this uh, passing through. That is, of course, despite opposition from the Labour Party as well. Uh, and in the end, many would say, well, that's politics because the government, by holding this vote as quickly as possible, have tried to ensure that MPs would be on sides. Of course, there's also much speculation that there could well be a reshuffle tomorrow as well, uh, which may, have weigh, may well have weighed heavily on those MPs. In the end, though, I think MPs, Conservatives one, faced a kind of pretty difficult actual kind of um, decision. Uh, fundamentally, they were being asked uh, whether they were going to have to increase funding on the National Health Service for the next three years. Just remember, of that £36 billion that's going to be raised by this national insurance rise, £25 billion is going to the National Health Service. Now, clearly, there is a case that it has been under strain during the pandemic, that it does need increased funding, um, and that in the end, that's where the vast majority of this money is going uh, towards. Uh, so, for a Conservative MP to vote that down, uh, given the pressure from Downing Street and from the whips, I, I think you'd have to be a pretty hard and seasoned politician to do so. We know, though, there are some that have done so. Uh, for example, Steve Baker, we don't think he rebelled against the government tonight, but he said he wasn't going to vote for it. He saw this as what he described as a socialist tax, uh, primarily because it is a tax on people in work. It is a significant increase in tax, and as we've been reporting all day, it is putting the tax level in Britain at levels not seen for 70 years. So a lot of disgruntled MPs, a lot of disgruntled Conservative backbenchers, but in the end, uh, they've essentially bitten the lip, gone through the lobby to support the government. But this is not the end of the matter, we have to remember. There will have to be primary legislation around this, uh, Nigel, and that means MPs will, at some stage, have an attempt to scrutinise what this legislation, when it comes to social care, actually means. But on the money itself, as you say, with a bit of a rebellion, but not much, uh, the government have managed to get it through the Commons tonight. Sarah McCaffrey, thank you very much indeed. Well, no great surprise there. Something of a rebellion. I can't give you the numbers. It looks to me like 20 to 30, something like that. I was just finishing off about the, about the advice given to um, white people working for the NHS. And the last point I wanted to make is at the bottom of the advice given to white people working yeah, within yeah, the NHS is they're told to be uncomfortable. That's right. If you work for the NHS, you should be uncomfortable about the fact that you are white. It's quite extraordinary. The other what the Farage, well, this one's not a particular surprise. Um, I thought this would happen. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, his stumbling, stuttering performance, his colossal misjudgment on the withdrawal from Afghanistan, the handing over, literally, of £85 billion worth of modern American military kit to what, until a few days ago, was considered to be a terrorist organisation. The opening up of the assets of copper, lithium and much else, 
uh, to the Chinese Communist government, uh, and the fact that America finds itself without friends means that Biden actually has fallen more quickly in the polls even than I thought. He's fallen by 10 percentage points in six key swing states, Arizona, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania and Texas, and his own approval ratings are now down in the low 40s. So, tough times for Joe Biden, tough times for the Democrats, and many would say they're absolutely deserved. Now, the Education Secretary, Gavin Williamson, uh, somebody who I have said two or three times before on this show, uh, I'm astonished that people like this are even in the Cabinet. But he's admitted today making a mistake. Yes, he has. It's Gav's gaff here, because he confused footballer Marcus Rashford with Mauro Itoje, the rugby player. And he said he'd enjoyed a Zoom discussion with the Manchester United footballer and child poverty campaigner Marcus, but an aide later clarified it had actually been with Itoje. You see, when politicians pretend, it always comes back and grabs them where it hurts. Now, this next one is something else. Donald Trump and his son Donald Jr are going to host a boxing commentary on the 11th of September, the 20th anniversary, and there it is, Holyfield versus Belfort. They're both veterans. Uh, they're both should have been retired, really, from boxing many, many years ago, but the Trumps are playing host. The Trumps are going to be the commentators. And Donald said, I love great fighters and great fights. I look forward to seeing all of this and sharing my thoughts with you ringside. You won't want to miss this special event, and it is available. UK viewers can get the fight for £9.99. A piece of optimism, why not? Now, for the last seven or eight years, Bluefin Tuna, yes, I'm being serious, Bluefin Tuna have been back in the Western approaches in very, very significant numbers. They used to be caught off the Yorkshire coast in the 30s, 40s and 50s, and I'm talking about big fish. These tuna, these tuna are back. This fish was landed on a boat I was on on Sunday. It weighed 320 pounds. It was tagged for scientific reason and released. Whilst we were out there, we saw dolphins jumping and the richness of our seas off Cornwall are quite something. And the optimistic thing about this, the optimistic thing is this. Before Brexit, we weren't allowed, even though this was happening within a few miles of our coast, we weren't allowed, firstly, to take tuna for the market, but secondly, as anglers, even to go out and target them. But now with Brexit, we've got 15 registered boats that will take paying anglers out to catch tuna, to tag them for scientific reasons and release them. So there we are. Not everything with the fisheries deal in Brexit is great, but that's one thing that is bringing us a bit of a benefit. In a moment, I will be talking pints with Tim Montgomery, who, amongst many other things, spent a bit of time in Number 10 Downing Street. I wonder what he has to say about Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings. Well, joining me now on Talking Pines is Tim Montgomery, co-founder of the Centre for Social Justice, former editor of the Conservative Home website, and briefly was a special advisor to Prime Minister Boris Johnson on social justice issues. Tim, welcome. 
very lovely to be here. Good I, to see you. I don't think I've ever drunk a pint on uh, television before, so this no, is well, a first as well. Uh, well, I mean, I've always done things differently, whatever, I, whatever <laughs> I've done in my life. And the point of it is that so much of television mm. is, and you know this very well, is the confrontational interview. Yeah. And actually that becomes quite boring. So the idea is we turn this into a pub and we have a conversation. Oh, um, I'm actually a viewer. I do watch these talking pipes. Oh, bro, well, I'm delighted. I've loved the ones with Anne Whitaker. I'm sorry, unlike Ken Livingstone, I haven't turned up with a black eye or something. <laughs> but one of the things I like about GB News and what I like about what you're doing is so used to appearing on TV and you have about three or four minutes. That's right. And I think it's partly what people don't like is you can, you can make one or two points, mm -hmm. but that's it. And then a slightly longer conversation, you can... Well, they're sound get bites. closer to the truth. Yes, I mean, they're sound bites normally, yeah. aren't they? And also, you know, of course I'm somebody with strong opinions and strong views. On, I had noticed. On many things. <laughs> no, on many things and often controversial yeah. views, although they tend to become less controversial as time goes on, i found in many, many areas. But the point is, and what I wanted to, I'm trying to do here, Tim, is to say we can disagree on things mm. fundamentally, but do so in a civilised and grown-up yeah. way. And that's what I've tried to do with all the... I did this debate tonight on 12-year-olds and, and should they be able to overrule their parents on the vaccine, and I feel very strongly you know, if the JCVI can't make their minds up on this, why on earth should a 12-year-old be able yeah. to make that decision? Um, but again, I made sure we had good commentators on both sides of that debate, yeah. and people at home can make their own minds up. Yeah. It was Alistair Campbell, when talking about politics and political movements, and not just politicians, but all everything that goes with politics and debate in this country. Alistair Campbell famously said, we don't do God. Yeah. Um, and, of course, I've spent much time involved with American politics, where they very much do do yeah. God. Uh, and, Tim Montgomery, you do God, and you've always done God. Yeah. And has that been a difficulty for you as a Conservative commentator? Has there been a conflict between what the Conservative Party wants and what your Christian principles tell you? Not especially. Um, there are other people who hate the idea that you have Christian faith, but, unlike America, I'd say the bigger problem now in Britain is the indifference to a Christian perspective. It's not that the Christian perspective is sort of feared or opposed in politics, which is true, I think, in the United States. There's mm. a lot of really anti-Christian sentiment. I think there's just the sense that anyone like me who does still believe in God or whatever, yeah. we're just a bit odd. But we're not really thought to be people particularly to worry about. Whereas if you look you know, at the history of much of... America or Britain, my political hero is William Wilberforce. Yep. You know, the guy who fought yep. against the slave trade. Then there's Shaftesbury, who reformed the factories. You look at Martin Luther King Jr., who really was one of the leading... Reverend Martin Luther yep. King Jr., who sort of was one of the leading, you know, people to fight for racial equality. Yeah, there have been some extreme Christians who've been bad influences in public life. But overall, I think it's good when Christians stand up for truth and justice and their beliefs in the public square. And one of the issues I think you and I disagree on, although we uh, agree on most things, is the overseas aid budget. I think there's an awful lot of things that Christians have done to speak up for the poorest people in the world that are good. <laughs> no, I just, I, Tim, I just have a problem with poor people in rich countries giving money to rich people in poor countries. I mean, that's the difficulty that I <laughs> we have. We could discuss um, this issue. Well, I mean, but if, that, if but you're happy with these... If you're happy I, with I these think corrupt dictators getting rich uh, by taxing the poor, fine. 
every use of government money goes wrong in some ways. In but some ways. Are, but there are people alive today because we've supplied malaria nets, we've supplied vaccines of various kinds, not the controversial yes. national COVID. And yes, aid budgets are misused. I just wasn't ways. very happy about giving money to China, um, giving money to India when they had aircraft carriers and we didn't, and a space programme, giving money to Argentina, who still had a claim over what they call the Malvinas. I mean, I, yeah. I just found it extraordinary. And I, what I really objected to was, was you know, your friend David Cameron, Oh my goodness, you're really Just going uh, below the belt now, your friend. <laughs> I'm, I'm teasing you. You can, you can tease me back. I don't mind. No, but what I objected to was this arbitrary figure. Yep, being, and that's being picked out of the air. Maybe there's one area that we could agree on, you know, because we're not going to agree on the aid budget. But one thing that I t we're both patriots, we love this country. What, how the government cut the aid budget, I think, was particularly bad. In the middle of commitments that we had made to build a school in certain part of Africa, or supply a medical programme. Without any notice, we pulled up the stumps. And that, for me, is just a fundamentally un-British way. You can support 0.3%, you can support 0.5%, but to make a commitment and then run away from it without any notice. That sounds, that, a, is bit how like, the that sounds a bit like Boris Johnson's government all over, doesn't it? I mean, because you've just said that to me, and, and we are just 24 hours on from the triple lot going, which was guaranteed in the manifesto, although I think there was some mitigation for doing that, mm. given wage inflation. Um, but a Conservative government that has now put the tax burden in this country up to its highest level since Clement Attlee was in office, mm. uh, taxing another tax on dividends, which for a party that once believed in a share-owning property... You remember all this stuff? I remember all that. <laughs> you know. Um, I had a picture of Margaret Thatcher on my wall when I was at university, <laughs> rather than a picture of rock stars and things. So. But, uh, I mean, number one, they are breaches of quite serious promises. And the issue of trust in politics has mm. been a huge... Ever since the expenses scandal. Mm the MPs' expenses scandal, which The Telegraph exposed rather brilliantly, I have to say. Mm -hmm. Trust broke down. I think a breakdown of trust contributed towards the Brexit vote in quite a big way. The fact that everybody supported Absolutely, it made yeah. people start to think, well, what's going on here? Yeah. Um, I think it helped, really, our cause. We're both Brexiteers. Yeah, no, I think the it did. The fact that most of the political class were united oh. in saying, stay in the yeah, European Union. Yeah, yeah, the wall to wall. And they had been for years. Mm. Um, but trust is important. Um, but it does seem to me, and maybe I'm being unfair, you know, you've known Boris Johnson a very long time, you've spent some time in number 10. Very briefly. Is he a Conservative? It's a really good question. I partly blame you, though, for all the troubles that we're experiencing. Oh, I knew it had come back to me. <laughs> <laughs> because you're in this television studio. You're not leading a political party. You know, for a long period of time, you kept the Conservative Party honest. Yes. So long as they feared yes. on their right flank, if you like, that's a simplification yeah, of the a, reality. A gross simplification, okay. but I know what you're saying. Yeah. You, so long as Conservative yeah. MPs and backbenchers feared mm. that if they didn't behave in a certain Eurosceptic or other way, they'd have UKIP or the Brexit Party or various uh, yep. parties breathing yep. down their neck, yep. you kept them honest. And the problem for the Conservative Party at the moment is it doesn't have that electoral discipline well, from I, outside. I'm not trying to dodge your no, question. No, 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 Tim, I mean, look, I, Tim, just on that point, mm. If I hadn't done what I'd done,
Boris wouldn't be Prime Minister and they wouldn't have an 80-seat majority. The point was that Brexit was the earthquake in British politics yeah. and it was the Labour Party that have got the existential crisis over it rather than the Conservatives yeah. who were very chameleon-like and quite good at changing position. Mm. What thanks I've had for it? Well, nothing, but that's another story. Well, that's story. an extraordinary thing. But that's another story. But, but Tim, is he a Conservative? Boris, without look, without you, we would never have had the EU referendum. Thank without you. Without Boris, we finished with me. What about yeah, Boris? Without Boris, I don't think we would have won the referendum. Okay. I think he gave a sparkle and a positivity to the referendum result that meant we got that 52 percent. He then defeated Jeremy Corbyn, which I regard as a huge public Wasn't service. Too difficult, to was this it? Country. Well, Theresa May couldn't manage it. Well, yeah, well yes, <laughs> yes, but um, yeah. And I, for, fine. For That's the basic fine. Point yeah. So he's a wonderful cheerleader. Yeah, delivering Brexit he's and a... defeating Jeremy Corbyn yeah. aren't unimportant things. No. But at the moment, I think this government is barely but conservative. He, but he did those things as a cheerleader. And, and my contention is that he's a cheerleader, not a leader. And I'm beginning to worry that you might be right about that. Mm. But let's not underestimate mm. his achievements. No, 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 um, no, no. Yeah. They, they are significant. No, winning elections, he's proved to be very, very good. There's no doubt about it. And people like the fact that he's different, that he's jolly. All of that works extremely well. He got on the Brexit bus, you know. Mm. It could have gone the other... His decision could have gone the other way. Mm. Whether he ever really believed in it or not, I don't know. But it almost doesn't matter. Yeah. Because somebody had to finish the job. And he did finish the job. And I acknowledge that. And I absolutely accept that. Of course I do. But, I mean, where is this government ideologically? It's all over the place. And it's I, all over the place. I, you know, the state gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, there's no respect for... Just think of that Sajid Javid interview this morning. There's no respect for the... No respect for parental rights. Mm -hmm. No respect for the family, mm -hmm. it seems to me. Well, the family no. is what you say, you know, we start with the G word, the God word, yeah. the F word, the family. Yes. It's absolutely sort of no one in politics talks about it. And actually, uh, the best thing I've had in my life is the love of a mother and father who've done everything for me. You know, I've got the best mum and dad in the world. And people who have parents who are on their side, yep. it's the greatest thing <clears throat> you can give to a child. And a conservative party or a conservative movement that mm. isn't interested in that fundamental building block of a good society, that doesn't even think about it, really, let alone do anything for it, is a problem. Now, we know Boris has um, a colourful private life, <laughs> but you go, you know, talk to a single parent family, go to someone who, most people in my experience, who in their own personal lives, through mistakes or, you know, whatever, bad turns, they don't if they're a single parent, they don't want their own children to have a single parent existence. They want them, you know, bringing up kids is hard. And it's harder when you're on your own. And so yeah. even when you maybe not have the ideal family life yourself, you can still say, I want, you know, for the rest of the country, for my own well, children, solid family. And rather like education. You might have gone to a rubbish school, but you'd rather your kids went to a very good school. Exactly. And, and of course that's right. And so the Conservative Party just <coughs> needs to be a little bit braver on the issue, I think. But, but there's also another group of people. There's nearly six million people in this country, mm -hmm. I'm quite a few watching now, I would expect, who run their own businesses through small limited companies or whatever it is, or they act as sole traders, they are risk takers, they are entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. they provide a lot more employment mm -hmm. in the private sector than the giant multinationals. They're vital to the backbone of the economy, they're actually where economic momentum comes from. Yeah. Momentum isn't just one or two big companies, it's, it's hundreds of thousands, millions of small companies doing things, growing. 
Taking uh, risks. And, and taking risks. And this government seems to have no comprehension of who these people are whatsoever. Is there a possibility, despite the difficulties of the first-past-the-post system, is there going to be a new Nigel Farage? Is there going to be somebody else that comes along, a splinter, a fracture, that challenges where conservatism is, is going? Or is it just too difficult, given first-past-the-post? It is very difficult. Well, you had the huge advantage, of course, is that when we were still members of the European Union... Had the European elections. We had the... I know. <laughs> <laughs> by proportional representation. Yeah. And that put... The BBC wouldn't have been putting you on their programmes if you hadn't won those electoral yeah. contests. Look... Yeah. I still believe in the Conservative Party. I think, yes. you know, it's, I, I grew up in the 1980s. Thatcher was, you know, my hero. Thatcher, Reagan, those yeah. were sort of... And they showed that you could change the course of history. Yeah. You know, the, by the, in the end of the 1970s, why I'm fundamentally a Conservative, why I'm so upset by recent events in Afghanistan, was it's national defence. You know, defence of the realm is the primary responsibility of government. And in the 1970s, the theory was that communism was going to last forever. And Thatcher mm. and Reagan decided it wouldn't. They did a massive military build-up. They basically forced communist states, the Soviet Union, to bankruptcy. Yes. And we won that Cold War. It worked. And I still... That is the Conservative yeah. Party for me. That's how I became a Conservative. Yeah, no, well, I... Without the Conservative Party, and with a little bit of help from other people, we yeah. wouldn't have had Brexit. Mm. I still believe in the Conservative Party. Well, the Conservative Party fought Brexit. Let's be, let's be honest about it. They fought Brexit. A lot of people... In... And, no, they fought Brexit, and then it became inevitable. Well, when I say the Conservative Party... You know, I used to edit Conservative Home. You I mentioned know. that. Yeah. Um, our members used to be so ferociously Brexit. I was always accused. <laughs> They're not really Conservative Party members, I was told. You've been completely infiltrated by UKIP. That well, a, that was a misunderstanding because yeah. actually the Tory grassroots have always been Eurosceptic. It just wasn't the leadership. And oh, I know. The problem is, at the moment, I think there's a little bit of a cuckoo in the nest. The Conservative Party has been captured by people who don't believe enough in conservatism. Well, it's the, it's and the, I still hope we can change it's that. The, so it's the I'm not running off to another political party. It's the Oxbridge yet. posh boys. And finally, Dominic Cummings. Is he a madman? That, you know, you said I had a brief period in Downing Street. It was very brief. And that really was because I think Dominic Cummings is a genius. 30, 40% of the time, but the rest of the time you don't want him in charge of anything. And the problem <laughs> is that Boris Johnson allowed him to have way too much power in Downing yeah. Street. I said that, Sasha Javid said that much yeah. more prominently, and we walked away from uh, our positions at that time because it wasn't working. Well, I haven't been right about everything in politics, right Nigel, about that. but I was right about Don Cummings. And finally, and Tim, and thank you for coming in, uh, will you be on Boris Johnson's Christmas card list? Uh, I'm certainly not on his wife's Christmas card. <laughs> she's, she's unfollowed me on Twitter, so uh, I think probably not on his either. I think a... she, she tells him what to do most of the time, I think. <laughs> oh, that was a brilliant answer. That was Tim Montgomery on Talking Pints. Well, I'm still laughing at that last answer, so I must, I must really shape up, mustn't I? It is now time for the last part of our programme. Yup, it's Barrage the Farage, where I do not get to see your questions beforehand, which makes it much more exciting. Gary on email asks, with rumours circulating of a cabinet reshuffle, what changes to the cabinet would you make if you were in Boris's position? I try and find some people with personality. I try and find some people with experience of the real world. Um, I try and find some people uh, who didn't just come from privileged backgrounds and Oxbridge and because Daddy had a lot of money, never had to do a job. I try and find some real people. And you know, funny thing, actually, I think on the backbenches of the Conservative Party, there are 
two types of politician that could really help. One, there are some, you know, older guys around the place, older men and women of real experience, who I think would do a much better job than the current bunch of nodding donkeys sitting in Cabinet. I also think, amongst the intake of 2019, there are one or two surprises. One or two people there who come from very different backgrounds who I think could really energise the Conservatives. And if Boris wasn't so paranoid about putting people into positions that might, in the end, threaten his own position, I think we'd see a very, very different Cabinet. And I, I, look, I look at that photograph today of yesterday's Cabinet meeting, and I said to myself, how many of those people would have been in Margaret Thatcher's Cabinet? I wonder. Tim, how many of them would have been in Margaret Thatcher's cabinet? Very, very few. She did surround herself with people she disagreed with. But they were she talented. They were talented. But they were talented. Absolutely. Ian on email asks, what can be done to stop Nicola Sturgeon going on and on about another Scottish independence referendum? Nothing. 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 She will just go on and on and on. It's agony. And she ne but no longer can she say, it's the oil. We've got the oil. That is what's going to pay and make us rich, because now she's decided that oil, because she's done this deal with the Greens, that oil now must be phased out over time. Look, if and when they get another referendum on this, they will lose. It isn't going to happen. Scotland isn't going to break away. Although I know a growing number of English people who actually rather wish they would. I'm not one of them, by the way. Lastly, Hugh on email says, that's a lovely tie tonight. I feel it's a great shame that everyone is dressing down and not wearing their ties to work, oh taking pride in how you look. I, I couldn't agree more. Shiny shoes and ties. I'm a believer. I really, really am. I'm back with you tomorrow.